thanks to Harry's for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. Get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel. Go to harrys.com slash fool. It's Wednesday, September 20th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Matt Greer, and I'm joined by Aaron Bush and David Kretzman from Motley Fool Supernova and Rule Breakers. Guys, welcome. Hey, hey. Hello. Guys, we got lots to talk about, just a lot going on in the world. Um, we've got some retail news. We've got a big deal um, that N- Nintendo announced, big partnership in China, Aaron. I know you've got some thoughts on that. Uh, we may talk a little Chipotle because they're still taking a beating over their queso. Oh, so brutal. I know. So I want to get an update there. Um, but let's begin with, frankly, a retailer that I have pretty much forgotten is still around, Bed Bath & Beyond. Wow. Bed Bath & Beyond taking a bath on Wednesday shares down more than 14% after the company lowered its earnings outlook and reported weaker than expected earnings. David Kretzman, I go to you. Is Bed Bath & Beyond beyond repair? Is there anything you can do to save this? Uh, well, what hurts here is that the stores aren't performing that well, but then on the financial side of things, management has just done more to add gasoline to that bad fire overall. Like If you go back to 2014, from a financial perspective, the company looked like it was in decent shape. It was producing over a billion dollars in free cash flow annually, had $850 million in net cash on the balance sheet. So they had cash in the bank. They were producing a lot more cash to add to that tally. But that year, they decided to issue $1.5 billion in new debt just to buy back stock. So they essentially went into more debt, bought back a lot of stock. And then a few years later, now the company has over a billion dollars in net debt, and their free cash flow production has almost been cut in half to about $570 million. So that, that's a bleak. Uh, direction to be going within just a few years. So they've really been focusing on on buying back stock. They haven't done a whole lot to improve the actual in-store experience. Or what they have done, I think, has just been very slow. They are making some progress with uh, their digital sales, which now make up about 15% of total revenue. Uh, they say that they're quote-unquote differentiated products, which they uh, consider like their exclusive products, personalizable products, makes up about half of sales. So I think that's probably an area where they really need to double down and find some way to differentiate what they're offering and how they offer it from Amazon and other retailers that are still out there. Uh, and they, they've also made you know some acquisitions into new uh, brick and mortar retail concepts. They bought a website personalizationmall.com late last year, where you can really buy and and personalize a lot of different items. And I think going that route makes the most sense to me. It's not a stock I would buy, even though it looks very cheap looking at these trailing metrics. But I think management has made some very poor cash management decisions over the past few years. And in the meantime, the the actual performance of this store leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah, yeah. One tidbit that I keep on coming back to for Bed Bath and Beyond and other struggling retailers is that when a brick and mortar store tries to add um, a quality e-commerce operation, not only does it tend to cause its physical stores to struggle more, but it makes the company increasingly expensive to run because they have to duplicate the cost just to serve that same customer. And so you do see them making really dumb decisions with debt and like adding new retail concepts, which just feels more like a distraction than anything. But just like the fundamental structure of how the economics work and and managing an like an in-store presence and an online presence isn't very very friendly. And they've been really slow to do this, but now that they are invested in it, I mean it's just another reason that's keeping like adding a margin drag and keeping earnings lower. 
So do you think in terms of that retail, those retail, um, traditional retailers adding that online piece though, I mean, I see why you, you would want to do it, right? Everyone's trying to fend off Amazon. You got to try anything. So you have Walmart with the jet acquisition. I mean, do you think that's going to work for Walmart or to take your logic, you know, even further, if you're Walmart, do you just stick to your knitting, which is just bread and butter traditional retailers? I mean, I think for, for Walmart and Jet, I think it was smart to acquire Jet, not for Jet itself, but more for the talent that, that is in that management team. And I know, um, uh, blanking on his name, Lore, something. Mark, was it Pat? Mark Lore. Mark Lore. Okay. Mark Lore, who, who was the head of Jet, now runs Walmart's e commerce operations. And so I think that was smart. Um, I mean, what Walmart really needs to do is just to continue to acquire. Um, things and really build up a big suite of an online presence. Um, when it comes to e-commerce, aggregation is increasingly important, and so you either have to dominate a niche or you have to to be someone that you can go to for anything and everything. And so it's it's tough, but I mean, Walmart might be able to pull it off. Amazon's definitely pulling it off, but for someone like Bed Bath and Beyond, it's a hard spot. Well, I think what Aaron mentioned too it highlights why it's so difficult for these brick and mortar retailers to pivot to more online or omni-channel sales, because it tends to be more expensive to, to operate both, rather than one or the other. But there, there is some value to the omni-channel experience, because you see Amazon clearly going, showing a lot of interest in opening up their own brick-and-mortar stores or acquiring Whole Foods. So there is value there, but it, it will, for a lot of these companies, I think it will be a short-term ding, but it's probably what they need to do to stay relevant and just figure out some way to hopefully improve the economics over time one way or another, whether it's offering more personalized services or some some sort of consultation, which you know, we're going to talk about Best Buy today, which they're trying to do something along those lines. But in the short term, the companies, I think they need to stomach those short-term dings if, if they want to stay relevant with competitors like Amazon. So Bed Bath & Beyond shares a lot cheaper today than they were yesterday, but you're still not interested? I, I just, just based on management's track record, both managing the stores and how they've been uh, trying to pivot those stores, I think they've, they've been lackluster there. And then they've also just really jeopardized the company's financial position because you're not going to go bankrupt if you don't have debt. And they, they completely... Uh, pivoted the whole balance sheet a few years ago to buy back stock, which in, in hindsight looks like a very dumb move. Shares <laughs> have continued dropping since then. So that was a poor poor investment and a very poor reason to go into debt. So th- from a financial position now, the company's future is in a lot more jeopardy now. So I'd, I'd stay on the sidelines here. So five years from now, are they still a going concern? Are they still around? I, I think they're still around, but they're probably getting pretty close to bankruptcy at, at the rate that they're going now. Okay, guys. Well, in other bricks and mortar news, on Tuesday, FedEx CEO Fred Smith said that e-commerce is not going to eliminate the retailing sector of the country. An interesting quote here by Smith. He said, it's about 10% now. It's certainly going to grow as a percentage, but will it be half? I doubt it. So, let's talk about that quote. Fred Smith on the future of e-commerce. Is he right that it may not even get to half? And if he is right, what does that mean for investors? I mean, even if it got to half, that would make me very happy. That's still huge. Um, but I mean, I suspect that he's wrong, but it's going to take a very long time for that to play out. I think that there still are very good reasons for there to be physical stores. There's showrooming concepts like like grocery stores and convenience stores. Those aren't going to go away at all. And so I think there are a lot of smaller concepts that will stick around and it doesn't make sense to go completely online. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, there the lines will be blurring. I think between uh, the the physical experience and the online experience, sort of like we we talked about. So, what what classifies as an online sale? What classifies as an in store sale? But there's still, I think, a lot of room for e-commerce to grow, as Aaron was mentioning. Because right now in the U.S., about 9-10% of, of sales are online, like you mentioned. And that's really just doubled since 2010. So, uh, But even in countries like Korea, where e-commerce is closer to maybe 17 or 18%, which is kind of the, the highest in terms of countries' um, adoption of e-commerce, you know, they're, they're still below 20%, so le- less than a fifth of their retail sales are happening online. So I think there's still a, a lot of room to run with this transition. And yeah, I, I would expect that down the road it gets to 30, 40, 50%. How long that takes is anyone's guess. I would ex- expect it to accelerate in, in the coming years. But uh, yeah, in general, I think there's still a huge opportunity, whether it's 40 or 50 or 80%, there's still a big room to run. And how about in that traditional retail space, that other 50%? Do you have a favorite name? I know we like Amazon when it comes to online as as being you know a company that continues to dominate and take market share. How about traditional retailers that may be Amazon-proof? What comes to mind? What, what, well, I'll throw out a couple. There's Tractor Supply Company, which I know, Mac, you and I yes. know and love. And uh, just because they, they cater to uh, people who are doing gardening, they, they might have livestock, just the the type of items you buy in tractor supply, like a fifty-pound bag of feed, or these these heavy items, or th- those are things you're, you're probably going to want some in-store service, and it's pr- just not necessarily logistically reasonable or feasible to ship <laughs> a fifty-pound bag of feed. Uh, and another one would be Camping World, which is uh, a nationwide RV retailer. So they're selling RVs, trailers, uh, and they're also getting into boats and other outdoor gear and stuff like that. Those are items that I don't see being sold online anytime soon. So I think they have a nice little niche there as well. I like to look for really strong brands. And so the number one company that strikes me as more Amazon resistant would be someone like Nike, um, which isn't really known for being a retailer, but they, they play in that playing field quite a bit with their own stores as well as partnering. And they've even partnered with Amazon. So I think what's most interesting to me is isn't as much looking for the companies that are Amazon resistant, but just looking for the companies that can stand on their own and partner with most anyone. Well, guys, I noticed neither of you said Best Buy. A rough day for Best Buy on Tuesday. The stock was down after the company outlined a new set of financial targets. David Kretzman, we're talking before the show here, really surprising, but Best Buy over the last one, three, and five years has beaten the stock market. So the stock has really had a nice comeback over the last five years. Um, The CEO, Hubert Jolie, says that Best Buy um, is now focused on growth. So, are you buying that Best Buy as a growth story going forward? I, I think they're in a an interesting position here. So, I, I I would expect them to continue beating the market over the next five years. Uh, what what he mentioned in this uh, presentation, like looking back over the past few years, like how has Best Buy stuck around? Because a lot of people, I think, including <laughs> probably just about everyone at the Fool, was basically writing them off. Like, okay, they're selling commodity products; they're not yeah. going to be able to compete on price. Amazon's just a very convenient option. So, Best Buy was a Essentially, a showroom for Amazon. So you go look, go to the Best Buy store, figure out what you're going to order, and you buy it on Amazon for ten bucks cheaper or something. Yeah. 
but he he basically said, no, we were able to compete on price, and where we were, were able to differentiate ourselves with Amazon was an extra level of service. So really doubling down on that service aspect, saying we're not going to try to you know sell, sell these items at a higher margin compared to Amazon or other uh, competitors, and so, so far that's worked really well. Uh, they they've managed to uh, they haven't really grown uh, financially a whole lot over the past few years, but they also haven't slipped a whole lot either. So they've managed to stay relevant in a time when a lot of people had written them off, and now what they're doing they're essentially taking that same strategy, but really focusing on this in-home consultation uh, strategy where they're offering the services. They'll have people go to your home for free and help uh, give you this consultation if you're trying to install maybe a smart speaker or a TV or all these other smart home devices. And I think that strategy makes sense just as uh, electronics become more complex, more expensive, more integrated with one another. So they're really taking that same strategy, competing on price. They're not trying to uh, upsell pe- or charge people more for the same product that they can get on Amazon. They're adding that extra level of service. In the short term, that, that will be expensive for the company because they're, they're rolling that out nationally. So they, they will take a hit there. But uh, Amazon's also doing testing a similar you know, <laughs> consultation strategy in a few cities. So it's, uh, it's clearly to me that the direction that they're going, I think that's a way that they can uh, stay relevant, even though in the short term, it probably will hurt a little bit. Yeah, I think it's interesting looking at Best Buy and the amazing performance of the stock. It kind of makes me think of like the tortoise and the hare a bit and how everyone underestimated the tortoise, which is Best Buy. But here it is. It's kind of won the race. And now I feel like it has a little bit of an ego. And so when it says that it's going into growth mode, I mean, if you look at what they're what they're forecasting for 2020, like it isn't that fantastic. Um, so revenue is still poised to maybe be up like 10 to 15% from now until then. EPS is higher, um, but that's just more from like buybacks and cost cutting. Um, I still think that they, they have a lot going for them. I think David nailed it on the head. Services is their differentiation, and that is increasingly going to be their source of competitive advantage. Um, helping really just like making Geek Squad a much bigger thing than it is, and really, you know, going along with this home this home assistant, uh, integrated home, smart home trends. I think that that's something that will be a more more important to them. That said, I tend to think that that trend might be a little overrated. I still think that that smart homes in general that they're not going to need a ton of of help to install everything. I mean, with the Echo alone, you just plug that in, um, and so. I, I just You're making that sound really simple, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us aren't as te- no, technically adapt. But well, well, I just mean, <laughs> no, I think point. the smart home trend isn't going to rise as quickly as people think it will. And they also are trying to get into like elderly care along with that as well. And there are so many others trying to do the same. It just makes me question if Best Buy is going to be the one to do it. I, I really admire that they're trying to, to be a great service here for everyone, but I don't know. I'm still a little skeptical and paranoid, maybe. Okay. Well, I will call you cautiously pessimistic. Well, oh yeah, I think that's uh, you know that's a nice <laughs> that's diplomatic way to put fair. it. Yeah. yeah, sure. <laughs> well, a, a couple of things that the the CEO mentioned of why this strategy has worked because when when you think about it, if you're you're selling something that you can buy online. Uh, you know, how, how are you going to do that and offer more service and make money doing it? But he, he basically said there's more margin at the high end, and the people who are using those services are probably buying the more expensive products. And then he, he was also saying that multi-channel or omni-channel is a real asset. Like, 
customers value having that complete experience, being able to have that hands-on time with the product and have that consultation. Then he also said it's not a zero-sum game. So Best Buy, they, they are still the leader in consumer electronics market share in the U.S., and they've been growing market share along with Amazon. So he's basically saying, if anything, it's a competition between Amazon, Best Buy, and everyone else, not Amazon and Best Buy. And just just looking at the financial picture of the company, it, it's a very stark contrast to Bed Bath and Beyond, Beyond, which we talked about earlier. Uh, strong balance sheet, two point three billion dollars in net cash. They're producing one point three billion dollars in free cash flow annually. So they're in a very solid position as long as they don't jeopardize it and do some dumb buybacks <laughs> and go into debt to do, to buy back stock like Bed Bath and Beyond. And the valuation is still reasonable, a PE ratio of fourteen. So they don't have to do a lot to beat the market from here. I don't think. And um, David, you were just mentioning Amazon, so I want to get your quick take. Amazon working on its first wearable device, a pair of smart glasses. The device will allow the wearer to summon Alexa, um, Amazon's digital assistant. And you can also hear Alexa without the headphones. Now, I remember when Google Glass and Google Glasses were the thing, and then they retired them, and then they brought them back. So, uh-huh. what, what's Amazon doing here? I, I'm th- This is toward the top of my list of okay maybe this is the next thing that flops like the the fire phone i think i think there's some cool there's some cool technology here but uh i i think for smart glasses or whatever you're calling for some sort of glasses product to to work i think that the camera has to be the focal point and i think there'd be some ar tie in there and amazon might have that but I, i think apple and google have a bigger lead at least from what they've released thus far but I don't know. At, at first first glance, looking at this story, I, I'm skeptical. I think this might be a flop, but that's that's the way Amazon goes. They're going to have their failures, and that's just how they operate, and they continue to learn each time. But Aaron might be more optimistic. No, I totally think it's going to be a flop, but I think it's... <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, but, but I do think it is fascinating for a couple of reasons. One, I think that Amazon jumping in and trying to create a smart glasses product kind of reinforces that this is something that's going to be relevant in technology in the future in general. So I think it helps clarify that. And it's important enough that even if Amazon can't come out with something impressive, they're still trying. They don't have a mobile phone operating system. So the more that they can get like literally on people, the better it is for them. The The second thing that's interesting, also because they don't have a mobile operating system, it means that that Alexa and the Echo, those are increasingly more important um, to them. And the more hardware places that they can make that software shine through, the more that reinforces their own ecosystem. And I think this is just one step towards more that we'll see from them in the future. So, a longer play. Oh, definitely. A, they're playing the long game. Okay, guys. Well, before we get to our final story, I want to say thanks to Harry's for supporting today's episode of Market Foolery. Now, I love Harry's products. I shaved last night with my Harry's razor. I don't. I, I look sharp. You're looking good, I? Mac. Oh, thank you. I, got, I had to get my game <laughs> face on. We're doing Facebook Live, and and guys, you know, if you're like me, and and I think you're kind of like me in the sense that you feel a lot better after a good close shave. Is that a true statement? I think so. Definitely. Well, that's what you're going to get with Harry's. You get the razor. You get the blades. You get the shave gel. What more do you want? Smooth, smooth, smooth. Now, Harry's is so confident that you'll love their blades, they're giving you their trial set for free. You just cover the $3 shipping. That's right, three bucks. You got three bucks, right? Oh, yeah. I got several three bucks. Okay. Less than a cup of coffee. (laughs) So, three bucks for a free (laughs) trial and a smooth face. So, stop messing around with whatever you're shaving with. You got one face and you want to treat it right. Get started with Harry's today by claiming your free trial set. That includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle. 
five precision engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade. I love the trimmer blade, you know, for the hard to reach spots and all that good stuff. Nice. And you also get rich lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover. That's a $13 value for free. You just cover the shipping. So go to harrys.com slash fool. That's harrys.com slash fool. Okay, guys, before we get to our final story, I want to do a quick queso update. David, we talked about um, queso last week, as in Chipotle unveiling its queso. I think a lot of us were excited about that. Aaron, you're from the great state of Texas, as I am, so I think we have some pretty high standards for our queso. Absolutely. And I got to tell you, the more I read about Chipotle's queso, the more I see one word that I don't want to see, and the word is gritty. I want to be characterized as gritty. I want my kids to be characterized as gritty. You know what I don't want to be characterized as gritty? Queso. In related news, Chipotle stock, having kind of a rough week. Yeah, yeah. So, Aaron, you have since tasted the queso. I have. Give me give me your take. Well, I went and tasted it right after, right after last week's taping. So Research. Uh, yes, the important stuff. I mean... I think gritty is a strong word. I understand where they're coming from. It isn't, it isn't super, it's not the smoothest queso you'll ever taste. I gave it a 7 out of 10. Um, so it's passable. It's definitely edible. I don't think anyone should be should be like screaming in horror after you know dipping a chip into it. But it's not your Velveeta style. I mean, I'm a sucker for just Velveeta and butter and whatever else you put in there. I don't need grit. Yeah, I wouldn't walk like five miles through the snow to get this queso. Okay, but. okay. I'm wondering, it's something, because I haven't had it since I tried it last week, but I do want to try it, just putting it on a burrito bowl, because then I feel like the, the texture isn't the issue, then you're focusing more on the taste. And I mean, based on some of these reviews, like you would think people just had such high expectations that this was going to change their entire life. It's like, no, it's it's queso. It's it's not meant to, to change your life. It's meant to <laughs> be, be another add-on you buy with your chips or something you add <laughs> onto your tacos. Like, come on, people, be realistic. But yeah, it is unfortunate, because I think Chipotle... I mean, because they had tested this in a couple markets, and the the early reviews from that test store, test kitchen that they have in New York, where they're testing the new ingredients like uh, salad dressings and margaritas and queso, it seemed like the initial reviews there were positive, but... Um, I don't know. Hopefully, they can uh, bounce back from this somehow. They said that they are still looking at tweaking the recipe. I was going to say, change the recipe. Yeah. So they they clearly need to do something. But at least people are talking about Chipotle and not referencing norovirus or rats. So to me, maybe (laughs) that is a small win. I like that. (laughs) I like that. Forgotten already. What what I would do is I would just get away for the queso. I would get away from the whole food with integrity thing because people don't care about that. They want good queso. And I would just brand this as a guilty pleasure. And they could even have their whole guilty pleasure menu. And I would bring in the Velveeta. That's what I would do if I'm Chipotle. I don't want grit. I don't want all natural ingredients. I want good, yummy queso that doesn't run out. You could have them side by side. Guilty queso, food with integrity queso. Perfect. And just, Perfect. That way, you know, the consumer chooses. But they'd have to take something else away. Oh, what would, what would they take away? And apparently, like <laughs> now all these people are also complaining that chorizo is gone. But it's management said that you know only 2% of customers were actually choosing chorizo. So at, at some point, I'm wondering, are people just looking for a reason to complain about yes. Chipotle? Oh, absolutely. I, you know? yeah. So yeah. it's like, they, they can't do anything right right now. No, that's but. true. I think that is totally true. <laughs> well, on a more upbeat, positive note, shares of Nintendo hitting a nine-year high on Tuesday on the news that Nintendo will be partnering with the Chinese internet giant Tencent. Aaron, for those of us who are not familiar with Tencent, why is this such a big deal? 
Well, Tencent is the largest gaming company in the world. I think it's larger than Activision and EA combined, if that gives any... That's big. Yeah, so it's 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 very big. And this is extra important to Nintendo because they've been on a roll. I mean, probably about a year ago is when they launched Pokemon Go. That was overhyped. I've heard but, that. But they since launched the Switch and kind of launched a new mobile strategy and such. And it's so far working out fine. But one thing that they are missing still is is third-party publishers to put their own games on the Switch. Um, Nintendo really just publishes their own games on it, but if others would do add their own content, it would be a bigger deal, reach a larger audience. And so um, that's part of why this is a big deal, because Tencent, largest gaming company in the world, is looking to put at least one of their, their top games on the Switch, which is good for Tencent because it helps them reach a new market, um, but it's good for Nintendo because it's a new game. But also, this is a great partnership because it can help Nintendo launched in China, and Nintendo has never launched in China, which is which is so fascinating because a few years ago, um, consoles were were banned because of the Chinese government said it interfered with education. But they, they've since changed. But Nintendo is still and it yet. does. As a father, I'd like to say that that is a true fact. <laughs> no disputing that. All right, but that that's changed, and so Nintendo is is contemplating ways to get in. So this Tencent partnership might be a key cornerstone of that. And my understanding from looking at this story is that there there isn't actually a guarantee that uh, Nintendo will be selling the Switch or any of their devices in China. But I guess the the theory is this partnership helps get them closer, hopefully to that point within the next couple of years. Yeah, and so I guess there's a win either way. Either they win and get into China, or they win and content that's in China helps bolster their presence outside of China. Yeah, can't argue with that. Okay, guys. Well, before we wrap up, I want to remind everyone that the third edition of the Motley Fool Investment Guide is now available. It has been update, updated and revised since the classic first edition came out back in 1996. Hot off the presses. So if you're a new investor, if you're a veteran investor, if you're somewhere in between, this is a great book for you. You can find out more at book.fool.com. David, Aaron, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Mac. As always, people on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Matt Greer. Thanks for listening, and we will see you tomorrow. 